I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at The Times. Today's topic, examining ethics. Joining us today is Kelly McBride, NPR's Public Editor and Chair of the Craig Newmark Center for Ethics and Leadership at the Pointer Institute. In the before times, Lane and I would have driven the mile to Pointer from the Times office and done this in person, probably with a glass or two of wine, Probably three. Let's. Who are we kidding? But now we're zooming. So thanks for joining us, Kelly. Yeah, it's good to be here. We wanted to talk about ethics in the context of 2020, when journalists have been dealing with so many important stories and issues. First, the protests. Conversations are happening in a lot of newsrooms that support about support for Black Lives Matter in particular. On the one hand, shouldn't newsrooms be all about supporting human rights? Wasn't there a right side to the civil rights movement? But on the other hand, if we are outspoken and expressive at public events or on social media, are we hurting our chances of being perceived as fair? I'm sure this is a question you're wrestling with and getting all the time. So yeah, curious what your thoughts are. I, I mean, I think that this question is the existential question of our generation as journalists. And I really believe that when we ask this question, we have to acknowledge that, or at least I have to acknowledge that I am a white person and white people have been in charge of journalism. And that when we, when we consider what is a political expression, we forget to to include in the equation the fact that we are, for the most part, starting this conversation in the power seat of journalism from a white perspective. And we don't want that to be the case, right? Like there isn't a single person in journalism that I like that thinks that we should stay as homogenous as we are in journalism. So... I know so many journalists of color who, when they looked at the summer of protest, felt torn between their duty as a journalist and their request from their bosses in journalism to not be part of the protests because it would be a political expression and it would reveal a point of view and then felt from their core of their being and who they were and who their families are, the need to protest. And that's an untenable position. We can't, we can't have both things in journalism. We cannot get more diverse as a profession and then tell people who enter our profession that you cannot fully express who you are. 
And so if we are going to become more diverse ourselves, we're going to have to rethink this. And I don't think the answer is deciding that like, oh, equality is right because that's too simple, right? And that's too, it's not, it's not that I think that this is not about equality and that we shouldn't all be fighting toward equality. It's not that. It's that that doesn't help us think through the ethical question as journalists. Instead, I think we have to, to re-articulate what our values are. And our value is to diversity and to equality. And then the value to fairness, which is also important, is, is something that we have to figure out how we ensure fairness. And I think it comes with this second value that the audience has been demanding of us that we have not necessarily embraced wholeheartedly in journalism. And that's the value of transparency and telling people who we are and what we do and where our money comes from and why we make up ethics codes at all and why we care about journalism as a function of democracy and really what what type of journalism we as an organization have set out to do. And that means that ethical decision, and this is true, this has always been true, but we have to say it out loud. There is no universal code of ethics in journalism. There is instead individual organizations that set their priorities and serve their audiences based on those priorities. And, and we need to stop pretending that there is some universal code that we should all be adhering to because that just doesn't exist. So, I mean, you, so you've described this dilemma that we're in. Um, how do we move forward? I mean, what do you, what do you say to people when they say we're in a real world, we're kind of in this predicament between at least the appearance of what we wanted to say, well, we we're an objective crew of people um, and, you know, we're going to be fair. And if you see us at a protest, there goes our objectivity or your sense of whether we're being fair. So what do we do? How do we, how do we reach a place that feels like we're doing the right thing? Well, I think, first of all, we have to, with our journalists in our newsrooms, we have to say to them, we expect you to be your fully authentic self at work. And you have to figure out what that means for you, but we are not going to stop your expression of that. I think that's the first thing, right? Is that it's not about what views you can express or cannot express. Then we have to say as an organization to our audience, here's how we are covering racial justice, or here's how we are holding the local police accountable for their immense power, or here's how we are covering political issues, or here's how we're covering abortion, right? Because a lot of times, um, especially here in the South, when I talk to newsrooms about this idea that, okay, you've got to let people express their own reality, right? Their own belief system and their own um, experiences in life, most of the time news editors are like, okay, great. Like we can do that. We're ready for that. 
And then I say, so what would you say if somebody wanted to express her experience with abortion? And they're like, oh my God, no, not that one. That one we're going to have to set off to the side. Like people cannot talk about having abortions and they can't talk about their own personal viewpoints on abortion. I, I just don't think that that's going to hold anymore. I think that it forces journalists to be inhuman, um, blank slates, and they're not. And the audience knows we're not. And so... So then we have so so then the second step is to be affirmatively transparent, right? Proactively transparent, to use a business jargony word, um, about how it is that we're covering these particularly controversial issues. What is our mission? What are our goals? Who are the individuals that we have covering them? And what is their um, What are their qualifications and expertise? Why are we covering this and acknowledging that like we actually have a starting point? We really do. Right. And it's not that we're biased against the police, but it's that police have a track record of abusing their authority, sometimes individually and sometimes systemically and sometimes both. And as journalists, our job is to hold them accountable for that power. So when we cover police, we are going to do so by looking at records, by looking at lawsuits, by looking at disciplinary actions, by looking at their hiring records and who they hire and where those people came from, as opposed to how I covered the police when I was a police reporter, which was just looking for juicy stories to tell. It's got to be more than that. And we, we have to, so, so we have to, we we can't just like tell people that we're going to do these things. We actually have to do them and we have to rethink what we're doing as we serve the community. I mean, it, it does seem like in a way that it is a tipping point, right? It's in, there, there seem to be these, these long, I came, you know, we all came of age after the civil rights movement, but I remember thinking like, Oh, I want to march in this March, you know, in college, even for like, medical marijuana and you can't do that because you work for the paper. I want to march in this watch for abortion rights and you can't march in that march. But something's mm -hmm. changed. Like this summer, it feels like something's changed and all bets are off. And and I wonder what that would look like in terms of in the moment being transparent, right? Like like you're out there as a young white or black person covering or old as I was <laughs> covering these protests and everything's happening in the moment. What are you saying or what are you doing on social media or in you know, your, your product at the, the Twitter feed or whatever to say, like, here is my viewpoint. I'm out here because I'm a reporter. I'm out here because I'm a, a young black man. I'm out here because I'm an old white woman. You know, how do you make that part of the narrative or do you? Well, I think when you are working as a reporter, you need to be clear that you're working as a reporter, right? So if you're covering a protest, you should be covering it. You should You should not be participating in it. But if you are not assigned to cover it at that moment and you are out there on your own with your kids, with your mom, right? Um, I think that you can document that in your social media feed that I'm out here because I want to be a good ally, because I want to support my black brothers and sisters. And I believe firmly that discrimination exists and that injustice exists and that there is systemic inequality. And I can tell you why I think those things, right? I can document the reasons why I think those things. It's not just a belief. It's a belief 
rooted in 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 foundation in facts um and i believe these things and if i have to cover this protest tomorrow if tomorrow i go into work and they say okay now you got to cover this protest that i'm going to cover this protest with accuracy right which means that if a bunch of protesters decide to start breaking some windows, I'm not going to minimize that. I'm going to document that because at that point, my loyalty will be to documenting what's happening, not expressing my viewpoints. And, and I may put that on social media too, right? But, but I think that the audience can handle nuance with who we are as human beings if we give them that second level of transparency. Right. So then in the newsroom, what you need to do as a newsroom is to say in as many ways as you can possibly say it, here's how we're thinking about covering this movement. Here's how we're thinking about covering the protests. Right. Here's how we decide which protests to cover. I get a lot of, um, I get a, I, I, I handled a lot of responses from the audience in my NPR seat about how journalists only cover protests when something bad happens. And that's, that's actually true, right? Right. We don't, most protests are pretty boring stories because nothing actually happens. Right. But if something bad happens, if somebody gets shot, if people start breaking things, if there's a confrontation between police and protesters, we're definitely going to cover it because we're telling you, Hey, this wasn't just a normal protest. Well, we got to be able to talk to our audience about how and why we make those choices. And, and maybe if our audience wants something different, like if our audience, if it's clear that our audience says, no, we want you to cover more than just that, we have to figure out a way to be responsive to that. Um, it's always hard to tell exactly what the audience wants other than that they click on things. Um, but if we can get clear indications that like, oh, our audience actually wants more than just the um, dramatic coverage of dramatic events around protests, then we should do that. But I mean, the same was true in the civil rights movement, right? Like there were lots and lots of protests. They didn't start getting a lot of coverage until there were confrontations. So you, you has your, your opinion on all of this has evolved over time, I suspect, right? So, um, and it sounds like you're saying, you know, basically be transparent about any and everything that you do, right? Like when it's your personal life and your and your role as a journalist, just be transparent. Um, so playing devil's advocate, there are people who would then like hold that against you, right? Maybe they don't want to talk to you because they think you are going to obviously be biased. So what do you say to that? Well, a couple things. And I want to tell a story about sort of how my opinion has changed on this. But um, there is... There are lots of there are lots of sources in journalism who either suspect or actually know that the reporters that they are working with do not agree with them. But they also know that those reporters are good and they're accurate and they'll get the story right. Um, and so I think we have to demonstrate our professionalism in getting the story right and people will talk to us. And that tends to be true across the board. I mean, it's true in sports reporting. It's true in, it's, it's true in all kinds of reporting. Um, 
but transparency is a lot harder and, and and it's because it takes a hell of a lot of effort to do and we don't have a lot of time we don't have we don't have time to do it we don't have time to think about it we don't have time to design the infrastructure that we would need for instance even like the back end systems that we use to publish information we need fields on those that will that will tell people whether this is opinion or reporting or analysis or some combination thereof. We don't, most backend systems don't have that right now. And even those that do, a lot of times the identifier um, either doesn't travel with social or doesn't travel in a way that the, that the content is clearly, you know, even satire, right? Like that it is clearly labeled when the consumer consumes it. So we have to think about designing systems that work that way. And then as we start thinking about that, we need to think about from the highest level of what's our core promise to our audience, which most newsrooms do not have written down anywhere, right? Like, like, hey, we're the Tampa Bay Times. We serve this geographic area in these ways Here's where our money comes from. Here's here's how we we decide our topics. Here's all our reporters that cover these topics. We, I mean, I challenge you to find that on our website at the Tampa Bay Font Times, to find that on most news websites, most newsrooms. When I go to a local news website, I cannot even figure out what community I'm in because it never says like we serve the Richmond or the Quad Cities or this entire state, right? It's just so hard to figure out. So Lane, when did you graduate from college? 89. 89. So I graduated in 88, right? So we are like the exact same generation. So when I, shortly after I graduated from college, maybe in the first four years, I went back. So I went to the University of Missouri and then um, worked for a little while in Cleveland and then went out West and worked in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho and Spokane, Washington. And I went back to Missouri to visit some friends. I was actually on a story and um, was in the region and met up with a bunch of my friends and went to a football game. And one of my best friends at that time came out to me and told me that he was gay and told me his whole journey. And that was a time when like, it's so mind blowing to think about now because now most of our children come out in junior high or early high school, right? And, and, but, but, but so this is like, like it, it was not unusual at all in that era to get all the way through college without coming out to your friends and then to, to come out to them as you sort of established your life. And that's exactly what he did. And my friend group was, um, was great. They were supportive and... There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Encouraging. Um, and, and I, 
And, and, and as this guy told me why it was so hard for him to come out to us, I was, um, I was really heartbroken that it hadn't been easier. And I wanted so much to change things. And so Spokane, Washington was having its very first pride parade and I was going to march in it. And I went and told my editor, I didn't even ask him. I told him, I was like, Hey, just so you know, I'm going to do this. And I told him the whole story. Um, and he was a great editor. He was single-handedly responsible for like turning me into a halfway decent reporter, um, and a, and a, and a halfway decent writer. And he said, look, he said, I'd really rather you didn't do this. And instead I would rather you report on the issue and that you use your power and your talents to document stories about what it's like to be gay, as opposed to participating in the pride parade. And I did, right? I did a, um, I eventually became a religion reporter. And one of the things that I am most proud of is a series that I did that was documenting what it was like. This was in the year 2000. So it was a fair, t it was a good deal later, but it, I documented what it was like to be a gay Christian. And I found all these different Christians from all these different traditions and all these different ages. And I, I let them tell their faith journey. And it was all these vignettes. And it was at a time when a lot of Christian denominations were wrestling with, should they sanction gay unions? Should gay people be pastors, right? Like there was a lot going on in Christianity. And I was really proud of that series. But when I look back now, and I totally bought it, right? Then I was like, oh, okay, I get it, right? Like that totally makes sense to me. And for the longest time, I believed that had I marched in that gay pride parade, I would not have been able to do that story. Now, I completely disagree with myself back then, right? Like now I think if I'd marched in that gay pride parade, I would have done a way better story. I would have met so many more people. I had to work my ass off to find those sources and get them to trust me and let me tell them their stories, right? Because, you know, I wanted their names on it. I wanted their photos. I didn't want to do it anonymously. I wanted people to be, to be, out and forthright. And, um, I, and so I don't see those two things as mutually exclusive. And I think the same thing is true now, right? Like if you wanted to tell stories of, um, of, of, of systemic discrimination, I don't think that marching in a Black Lives Matter protest prohibits you from doing that. And if your job is to cover the police department and to cover systemic discrimination, I don't believe that marching in a Black Lives Matter protest that's saying Black Lives Matter is different than actually going to the police department and saying, could you please show me the data around all the people that you stopped for speeding and let me compare that to the demographic data of our county to see if you are actively discriminating against people. I think that they are the same act. And so I get that the, that there is a perception problem and that's what we're talking about is this perception before the internet. I think that we 
could actually manage the perception by creating this alternate reality where our journalists didn't express their points of view. I think that since the internet, even if we tell our journalists you can't express your point of view, we still have a perception problem. So we haven't, we're not actually solving a problem anymore by preventing journalists from not expressing their points of view. And we especially, we weren't actually doing it back then. We were doing an end run around the problem by not letting them express their points of view. But now we can't, we don't even have that luxury to do the end run around the problem. And so we really do have to get our reporting and our mission and our standards of verification and establishing facts and our dedication to documenting the world around us. We have to get that in order and we have to convince the audience that we're really good at that. And that's where the challenge resides. I was just gonna say, it's interesting to hear you talk because I, I feel like the younger generation and the more diverse journalists on staff, when, as, you, as we grow, as we get more diversity on staff, um, yeah, there's, they're, everything you're saying is what's coming out of their mouths now too. It's sort of like that we can't, we can't and we shouldn't hide who we are, that we need to do a better job of being transparent about what we do so that you can justify anything you've put in a story and it doesn't seem like it's coming from a particular, you know, point of view, it's, it's coming from good reporting. So, but I, that's all I was just going to say, Lane. Yeah. But and we, we have reporting. actual work to do on that front, right? Like, like we're going to have to do fewer stories. We're going to have to spend more time doing them. We have actual work to do because when you talk to people in the audience about why they don't trust the media, the first thing that they cite are stories that they have seen that they have consumed that have factual errors in them, right? We make a lot of ticky tacky errors in our work that we just don't catch be because we're going too fast, because we're not paying close enough attention to detail because we don't actually fact check. Um, and so, so we, I mean, we as a profession have work to do in this area. It, it's also really hard to think about just to visualize how you would make that transparency happen when you're marching seven miles in 100 degree weather in the rain and tweeting every three blocks and sending feeds to an editor on a desk. You know, do, I mean, does that come in about in a, a journalist's profile? You know, or how does a news organization then include that transparency in a tweet versus in a daily story versus in a big project? I feel like we're good about the project stuff. You know what I mean? But it's just hard to figure out how to make manifest that in the moment, I think. I get the big picture and the institution-wise, but I wonder what we need to be doing in the moment, you know? Well, so if you are marching seven miles in documenting a protest, right? You're the reporter there documenting it your job is to do that and to, to spell the names right and to get the facts right. And, um, and, and, and it is your news organization's job to figure out a way that that Twitter feed, people who are following that Twitter feed and they click on the bio and they end up back at the paper or the, the, the website can figure out what your mission is around covering this particular issue. So it might be that if you think about um, 
our beat structure, every, you know, we cover stories because they fall into certain beats. Beats are priorities for us, right? The reason that we have beats is because we say this is important. We should have a mission statement for every beat. And so what is the beat here? Well, you, it's either public safety, right? Or it's, or it's social justice, right? We should have a mission for those beats and our audience should, if they are so inclined, be able to get to information where, where they say, oh, I see the Tampa Bay Times is dedicated to um, holding local organizations, businesses, government agencies, schools accountable for social justice. That would then tell, and then I know that like, oh, like this is a priority for you as a newsroom. It doesn't matter whether, whether the person covering the protest today marched in it yesterday then, because I can get to that information. So I don't think it changes the on the ground work. It changes how we think about um, doing that on the ground work. Just one more question, change the subject for a minute about the pandemic, since we're in the summer of love, as I like to call it, <laughs> we just got surviving. Um, it's been really interesting and really distressing to see something like a, a health crisis, a, a virus, a world global health crisis being, become so political. And, and I've struggled in, in doing the reporting and, and talking to people about it too, in terms of like, how do you cover, I get covering the let's all stay healthy side, but the, the idea that someone's become politicized, like wearing masks, what is it news organizations responsibility in terms of not finger wagging, but getting the word out? Oh, public education, right? We absolutely have a responsibility to make sure that our audience is informed and not confused about science. And it's hard when you have political figures who are ignoring the science or even contradicting the science. But our first duty is to make sure that our consumers are educated about the science. Our second duty is to hold public authorities accountable for what they say and what they do. Um, and, and then I think beyond that, it is, I think, I think beyond that, then we have to find our, we have to find a way to, to help people tap into their compassion. So it's probably less stories about look at this whole crowd full of people on a beach or in a bar or at a football game, not wearing masks and more about, because that's just like schadenfreude, right? That's just like, I, I, I don't know that the, yeah, that's finger wagging. Absolutely. Um, you know, but more stories about, um, you know, here's, here's what it's like if you're the athletic director of a university and you're weighing the future of your athletic program and the individual athletic careers of these athletes and the, the, the ability of your university to even stay open, right? Here's what it's, here's what the math looks like. Here's who you're going to have to lay off next year if you don't bring in so much revenue. Um, I mean, like, like helping people be a little more empathetic to the very difficult decisions that people are making um, is that I think that's 
I think, I think that's the kind of work that we could do better. Um, and we spend way too much time pointing out the dumb things that this politician or that politician said and how dumb they were and how there's no science behind it and how all these people believe that because they want to, you know, we, that's, we, we point out the divisions to a fault, I think. So clearly we should have signed Kelly up for like a whole series of um, ethical uh, episodes. So hopefully we'll get you back because I feel like we're, these are really good conversations and there's so many other topics to talk about. But if you have a question for Kelly or for Lane, um, or you want to suggest a podcast topic, find us on our Facebook group or email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. Join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next podcast. This podcast was produced by Ayana Ishmael. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.